This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 169, Silence. I am Hal Hammonds and I am a Citizen of Heaven and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in. Is silence golden? Is it deadly? Is it nervous? Is it dramatic? As with everything else I seem to talk about in this space, it depends on the context. This week we will discuss the role silence plays, if any, regarding authority, the greatest silent picture star of all time and what he didn't say, the thousand tiny triangles that play constantly between my ears, and your new favorite game that I'm here to make you hate. We'll start with what I've been preaching. You could argue that the opposite of silence in a biblical context, in a doctrinal context, is the word word. Words are offered to break up the silence. And so when we hear God's words, whether they are from Old Testament prophets or from the man himself, Jesus Christ, whether they are from his inspired apostles, or whether we read those words when we pick up our Bibles, those words are given to us to compel us to act or to not act in his name. Do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus, Colossians 3, verse 17 says. That's authority. When God is speaking out of authority, we need to remember Habakkuk 2, verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. That's not talking about refusing to sing in the assemblies or refusing to pray out loud or anything like that. It's speaking in violation of the concept of authority. God is reigning. We cannot say or do anything that would indicate that we have no respect for that. We must remain silent when he is speaking. And we must acknowledge the things that God says and the specificity of the things that he says. This is where the term silence of the scriptures comes into play oftentimes. What is that exactly supposed to mean? Well, I've always taken it to mean this that God chooses to speak on a wide variety of topics. He speaks sometimes very specifically, sometimes not very specifically. If God chooses to define a point of view for us, if he chooses to define a doctrinal position, we need to be as specific as his words are specific. Take instrumental music, for instance. If he authorizes us to engage in music during our worship assemblies, we need to make sure we do that. And he has, of course. If he tells us what kind of music he wants, then we need to respect that. And he does that too. He talks about singing and only singing and never anything except singing. When God remains silent with regard to other things, but he has been specific about singing, this necessarily implies to us that he wants us to sing. And then he does not want us to do anything else. This is usually where the preacher gives the analogy about sending the teenager to the store for a loaf of bread and he comes back with a loaf of bread and a thousand other things. The silence with regard to other specific items is implied in the specificity of the item that is mentioned. When we read in Hebrews 7 verse 14, the writer tells us that the priests were to come from the tribe of Levi and about the tribe of Judah The law said nothing regarding priesthood. We take from that this point that we're trying to make here. God didn't have to say not from Issachar, not from Zebulon, not from etc., etc. He said what tribe the priesthood was to come from, and that was enough. 
Now, once God ceases to be specific, for instance, how we carry out that singing, whether we do it with visual aids or whether we have a director, whether we use hand motions, the Bible doesn't speak to that topic, not at that level of specificity. And therefore, we're free to do as we wish. That's the way authority works. When God speaks, when he breaks up the silence, we need to accept what he says in that moment. His words are spirit and life, John 6, verse 63. The connection that we have to Jesus abiding in him is connected directly to his words abiding in us, John 15, verse 7. The more we accept his words, the more we respect his silence. In Acts 15 and verse 12, we see respect for the leadership shown in the people there in Jerusalem as there was this controversy regarding the Gentiles in the church. And when the leaders decided to speak out of authority, the others kept silent. They are respecting what the elders, what the apostles have to say on this subject, and they show that by not speaking. This comes up sometimes in the context of the participation of women in the assembly. And we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we look at verse number 34, for instance. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. And we have this big argument about what exactly the silence is in this context. Clearly, it's not a failure to speak at all, because women, like any other Christian, they are required and obligated to sing, which is not a silent kind of thing. But look at, for instance, in verse number 30. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. And elsewhere in this context, the same word silent is used to refer to someone who chooses not to assert himself, chooses not to be a person of authority. That's what we're doing when we're keeping silent before God, a la Habakkuk 2 verse 20. We are choosing to allow him to be the authority source. We keep silent. Respect for God's authority requires that we channel our personal opinions, our personal feelings about doctrinal matters or whatever, and we submit to what he has actually said. And the more specific he is about the things that he says, the more specific we get in our obedience to those things that he has said. This is what I've been reading. I had a couple of different ways I wanted to go with the autobiography of Charles Chaplin. Then I finally decided, well, you know what? I'll just go both ways. Why not? I have seven whole minutes after all. I'll start with the obvious. Charles Chaplin, Charlie to the world, is best known for the making of silent pictures, acting, directing, producing. He was a genius. Chaplin taught us and continues to teach us that comedy transcends words. If you've ever been on Facebook or TikTok or whatever and seen funny pictures and videos of pets or babies or car crashes, you know, whatever it is that does it for you, you know what I'm talking about. Funny things are just funny. As I heard Jay Leno say one time, the rich man slipping and falling in the mud puddle is always going to be funny. You don't need words. Chaplin certainly didn't need words. If you've ever seen a Chaplin movie, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, I would encourage you to check it out. Maybe start with The Kid, one of his early movies. Four-year-old Jackie Coogan playing opposite The Little Tramp. Hilarious. Funny, funny stuff. With no words. Until it turns horribly, horribly sad. One of the first movies that really mixed pathos and comedy. You don't need words. 
you know exactly what's going on. You know when the kid is running away from home. You know when he is heartbroken at having to leave Charlie. It's obvious. And some of the world's most important lessons are taught without words. Certainly God's lessons are often taught without words. For instance, in Psalm 19, starting verse 1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Well, the heavens can't talk. How can they be telling of the power of God, the works of God? Well, we get details about that. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them, he has placed a tent for the sun, which as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, it rejoices as a strong man to run its course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its seat. Everything that the sun touches is witness to the glory of God, the power of God, the love of God, the majesty of God. We don't need words. We simply need to pay attention. The other way I wanted to look at silence in the context of the autobiography is with regard to Charlie's second marriage. He had four, which is a story in and of itself. He married a woman named Lita Gray, and it was a disaster. Well, all but the last one were disasters to one level or another, but this one especially was. And yet in the autobiography, Lita Gray is hardly mentioned at all. I think three times in the entire book, her name comes up. Nothing is said about the divorce. As preachers oftentimes say, he observed the Passover. He just didn't talk about it. And in this era of tell-all books and TMZ and Johnny Depp and Amber Heard and on and on we can go, it seems astonishing that perhaps the most famous person in the world would simply choose not to talk about his personal business. And since he didn't talk about it, we'd have to speculate why. Perhaps it's because his two oldest sons were her sons. And he thought that beating up on their mother wouldn't do him any good. I try to stay away from Hollywood headlines. I find myself sleeping better at night when I do that. And I can appreciate that Mr. Chaplin did not want to delve into the seedier aspects of his life when telling his own story. Reminds me a little bit of Proverbs chapter 12. and verse number 23, a prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. Is it really important to tell everybody how much of a mess you made out of your life? There's a lot of garbage in Charlie Chaplin's life, and he talked about most of it. But sometimes it's best to just keep the information to yourself, especially if it's going to hurt someone else, and to no real profit for anyone. Oftentimes when we talk about what we say needs to be talked about, what we're really doing is proclaiming our own folly. We're saying, this is where my head is. This is what I value. This is what I think that you would value. And so instead of telling other people about the person that we're estranged from, our enemy, our nemesis, whatever, what we're really doing is we're telling them about ourselves. We're telling them that we're bitter. We're telling them that we're hateful, that we hold grudges. If it serves no purpose, it's generally better to just keep our mouths shut. And let's be honest, most of the time, it serves no purpose. A prudent man conceals knowledge. Just because you have information, that doesn't mean you need to be sharing it. If we could exercise a little bit of prudence with regard to the ugliness in our lives and regarding the ugliness in other people's lives also as we have access to it, we might find that we glorify God best by forgiving, forgetting, and moving on. Maybe this is one of those situations where silence really is golden. 
This is what I've been hearing. I suffer from tinnitus, more familiarly referred to as ringing of the ears. I can't remember when I didn't have it, certainly dating back to my 20s. It's suggested in some quarters that tinnitus' cause release can be caused by listening to loud noises over an extended period of time. Well, I wasn't working on airport runways or anything like that in my 20s, but I was listening to a lot of rock and roll music, and generally as loud as my neighbors would allow me to listen to it. Certainly went to my share of concerts. And in hindsight, especially given the quality of the music, or lack thereof, that I was listening to back in the day, it really gives me a bit of angst that I could be suffering like this on an ongoing basis because I was so determined to listen to something that really ultimately was not worth listening to. But then don't get me started talking about popular music. We'll save that for another day. As far as I can tell, I never don't have tinnitus. I don't always notice it, but when I stop and pay attention, there it is. Yeah, there it is right there. And the deeper the silence and longer the silence, the more apparent the ringing is. The reason it doesn't drive me crazy is because I fill the silence, ideally with profitable things. Usually it's me talking, and we could argue about exactly how profitable that is. But the more I can concentrate on other things, the more the tinnitus seems, anyway, to fade into the background. It probably doesn't actually fade away, but I don't notice it as much. I love the idea of tuning out the bad things by focusing on the good things. I think that's a good approach to life. I would love to live in a world where I did not have access to ugliness, where I did not have access to the noise that Satan makes. And one of these days I will. In the meantime, that buzzing is there constantly. And if I pay attention to it, if I focus on it, it just might drive me crazy. Instead of imagining that somehow, some way, this noise might go away, it's better to focus on different noise, more profitable noise. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John are witness to this extraordinary event. And instead of getting information about Moses and Elijah, instead they get information about Jesus, more than they're prepared to accept at that point. The voice comes out of heaven saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. In Mark 9, verse 7, Peter refers to this event in his second epistle, demonstrating this was a life-altering event. We have the same mandate ourselves, without the bells and whistles, of course. Listen to him. If you get discouraged by the noise in the world, if you think that it's going to drive you crazy, fill your hearing with something worth listening to. Listen to him. The more you fill your heart, the more you fill your mind, the more you fill your ears with the things of Jesus, the dimmer and more faint the things of the world become. I've taken to taking my headphones with me when I walk the dog, Pepper, so I can listen to podcasts, so I can listen to Kenny Embry and Chris Emerson and Jeff O'Rear and Emerson Brown and so many others that I listen to who have good things to say about their experience, about the Bible, about the world, about heaven. 
about what it means to be a Christian in an evil world. I need to be hearing those things. I need to be saying those things to drown out the buzzing in other people's ears. The more full I get of Jesus, the less room there is in my ears for anything else. It reminds me a little bit of Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus says, starting in verse 43, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. I don't know if that's literally how demon possession worked in the first century or not. It doesn't matter for my life. But I am confident that's the way it works with regard to evil in general. The more I fill myself up with good things, the less I hear the bad things, the less distracted I get, the less angry I get. I don't want to live in a world where I am obsessing with things I can't control, things that are not good for me, things that will destroy me if I give them half a chance. I want to live in a world that's dominated by Jesus. I can't completely make that world for myself. That doesn't mean I can't give it a try. This is what I've been playing. More often than not in this space, I refer to a game that is unknown to the vast majority of my audience that you'll probably never play and yet has some kind of meaning for me. And you listen anyway. I appreciate your patience. Lately, I found myself spending more time on games that you probably do know, that you know from your childhood, like I know from my childhood. Sorry, or Monopoly, Scrabble, etc. Every once in a while, though, I'll feature a game that is what you might call a modern classic. A game that you have access to, that maybe you have played, maybe that you do like. Catan, or Seven Wonders, or Ticket to Ride. Today, I'm going to do something that I hardly ever do. I'm going to talk about a game that is very popular in the modern day that you may have seen, that you may have played, that you may really, really enjoy. I don't enjoy it at all, and I'm not trying to rob anybody of their joy. If you want to play the mind, play the mind. That's fine. But the mind touches on all of my hot buttons. It's a cooperative game. My attitude toward cooperative games is well-established here. In philosophy, I think cooperative games are great, but we can't find any that we like. Not in the Hammond's house, anyway. Maybe we're just not cooperative. It's very, very luck-driven. It's overly simplistic. Let me explain a little bit how it works. In the mind, there are 99 cards, numbered 1 through 99. What a shock. And you have a hand of cards that ranges in numbers depending on how deep in the game you go. It starts out relatively simple with just one card or two, or three. And the goal is for everybody at the table to play the cards that they are dealt, that they are all dealt, in ascending order. The lowest card first, then the next lowest, etc. That doesn't sound like much of a game. Well, here's the thing. You have to do it without speaking, without really communicating specifically at all. And this is the thing that really gets me about the mind. This is a game dynamic that has become increasingly popular, seems like, in the last 10 years or so. Playing a game where you're not allowed to talk to the people who are at the table with you. In my mind, that is exactly the opposite of why people play games, or why I play games anyway. I want to talk, not just for the sake of talking, but to connect with people, to form 
social bonds, sometimes in a kind, supportive way, sometimes in a combative way, whatever. But the more communication that's going on, the deeper the experience, as far as I'm concerned. The mind deliberately robs you of that. You are not allowed to speak. Obviously, if you were able to speak like you wouldn't speak in any other normal situation, there wouldn't be any point in playing the game. It wouldn't be a game. It's barely a game as it is. Again, maybe that's just me. A lot of people love the mind. It's very, very popular. It drives me crazy. The idea of keeping people from communicating with one another is silly. You're going to communicate. Maybe it's with eye rolls. Maybe it's with crossed arms. Maybe it's by falling asleep at the table, which I might do if I were playing the mind. Simply refusing to talk only robs us of the best way for us to communicate with one another. And it seems to me like in our society these days, we need to be concentrating on ways to communicate better, not artificially forcing one another to communicate worse. That's my attitude with regard to spiritual things also. Communicating with one another is key. And oftentimes when we do not love one another, when we do not have the spirit of Christ, we will minimize the contact that we have with brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe we'll duck out during the closing prayer. Maybe we won't come to church assemblies at all. Whatever it happens to be. We want to push away from brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't want to communicate. We won't want to be communicated with, unless maybe we're in the hospital or something like that. Jesus calls us to do exactly the opposite, to increase our communication skills, to deepen them, to deepen the content of our communication. Ephesians 5 verse 19 tells us that we are supposed to be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This connection to one another is central to the Christian experience. Training one another, especially in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, in the context of parents and children. Fathers are not supposed to provoke their children to wrath, but to bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Not just teach them, but teach them in a way that's most effective. Not in a way that angers them. Not in a way that exacerbates them, as we read in Colossians chapter 3, a parallel passage there. Channeling our emotions, putting them in a profitable direction. Ephesians 4, verse 26, be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. We are emotional beings, and it's going to come out in our communication, but it needs to come out in such a way that amplifies and intensifies and strengthens our ability to connect with people. We all know if communication goes wrong because of temper tantrums or what have you. The more we talk, the worse it gets. We need to do exactly the opposite of that. When we're correcting one another, we do it in the spirit of gentleness. Galatians 6 verse 1 says, we communicate that gentleness, that love, that compassion, including and particularly when our brother or sister in Christ is in a sinful situation. Because, hey, you know what? We might be in a sinful situation too. Maybe they can help us with our pride issue as we are helping them with their morality issue or whatever it is. When we're trying to teach those who are on the outside, Colossians 4 verse 6, we season our speech with salt so that we know how to respond to every person. It's not just a matter of choosing to talk instead of not talk, which is great, and a lot of people don't get that far, but we choose to talk better. We choose to talk more effectively. We channel our emotions, our attitude, our disposition in such a way as to maximize the effectiveness of our communication. As you interact with brothers and sisters in Christ, as you interact with family members, with neighbors, etc., with strangers, 
do so in such a way as to effectively show people who you are, and especially effectively show how Jesus is taking over your life, how you are crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who are living, but Jesus who is living in you, to paraphrase Galatians 2 verse 20. That's not going to be done only by the words that we speak. But I assure you, if you do speak, and if you speak well, the message is going to come through far, far more clearly than if you stay silent. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.